got this new pulpit here. I don't know who normally preaches, but is there a way to like raise it up a little bit? It's a little short, don't you think? I don't know. Like, oh, okay. Riders taking, taking the fall on this one. Good. Oh, well, it's a joy to be here. And uh, as Jason mentioned, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastor's elders here, and I have the privilege of bringing God's word to us this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. So Matthew 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you, underneath the seats in front of you. And if, uh, if you're not sure where to find it, Matthew is towards the back half the first book in the New Testament. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. So Matthew chapter 20, we're going to read from verses 29 to 34. It says this, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, Have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, when you start a new job, there is always a significant learning curve. If this time where you're trying to figure things out, there's so much that you don't know yet. And along the way, you usually have to ask a lot of questions and you usually make a lot of mistakes. And with this, there's always this question mark of how your boss, your supervisor, is going to react to your neediness, right? Um, are, are, they, are they just going to be annoyed that we need help? Um, what are they going to do when we've kind of made a mess of things or when we don't know how to do something and we, we have to ask again and again? I had one boss, I can remember, and, it, and, and I never knew what I was going to get. Sometimes, extremely patient, eager to help, answer my questions. Other times, it was like, why don't you know this already? And just annoyance that he had to take time to help me out. I wonder where you would see Jesus fitting in this scenario. When you're needy, when you don't have the answers, when you have to ask for help, what kind of boss is Jesus? Is he the kind of boss who is eager to help, who is patient, or is he the kind of boss who is annoyed that you need help, wants you to figure out it on your own? Or do you not know what you're going to get from day to day from Jesus? Some of us 
feel like that at times, right? Like we don't know. We think maybe Jesus is moody or we assume that he's annoyed with us. And what we're going to see in this passage is that as we come to Jesus with our need, our Savior moves toward us in his compassion. We're going to look at two points today. Desperate faith, number one, and number two, deep compassion. So first, desperate faith. Notice verse 30 in Matthew 20 here. It says, behold. It says, and behold, Matthew is calling our attention just to look, to pay attention. Because here's the deal. It would have been easy to miss two blind men sitting by the roadside. The crowds did, didn't they? But when we do notice these men, they are a picture of desperation and need. Think about being blind and then think about being blind in the first century. Even more than now, there was a dependence on sight. There was extreme physical limitations when you couldn't see. These men couldn't see the doors of their houses. They, they couldn't see the food in front of them. They couldn't see to put on their clothes. They, they were limited severely. They were needy. And these physical limitations in turn led to extreme financial desperation. There was little to no support in society. They had pretty much zero chance of any kind of a job. They, they couldn't use a shovel or pound a nail or gather wood. Their only option really was to find a place where there were lots of people and to beg, to just hope that someone would give them some spare change. On top of this, there was a kind of social desperation that these blind men lived with. They were not exactly the upper echelons of society. They were poor. They were dirty. They were beggars. And on top of that, some viewed them as being cursed by God. In all of this neediness and desperation, though, there there was one residual side benefit, and that is they knew that they were needy. They knew that they were needy. They knew they needed help. They knew they didn't have hope for life and just making it through life in and of themselves. They weren't under the illusion that they were okay or that they could handle life on their own or that they were aware of their desperation. And and this is the advantage of physical blindness over spiritual blindness, right? Spiritual blindness, you, you think you got the answers. You can handle it. You can see. I can figure it out. But physical, physical blindness, you know you can't. In some sense, then, these men are an example to us. We, we need to see ourselves here that, that we're just as needy spiritually as these men were physically. We're just as desperate and dependent as they were. Look at how their desperation takes form here, how it works itself out. In verse 30 there, it says, Behold, there was two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, these guys start yelling. So there's large crowd following Jesus, and these guys start yelling. I don't know about you, but I don't yell in public very much. And you, you think about it. When you, think about the last time you, saw, you were in public and somebody was yelling, just by themselves, right? Not like at a sporting event. But you're just somewhere, and somebody starts yelling, you look to see who the crazy person is, right? 
That's what we do. Who's the crazy person yelling in public? You don't yell in public unless what? Unless you're desperate, right? Or, or emotionally disturbed or whatever, right? But, but there's something that we should learn here that they were yelling in public. They were desperate. Not just that they were desperate, though. They also, there was faith here, right? We don't know how, but these men knew something of Jesus. Probably they'd heard him preach, or maybe they'd just heard about him from travelers. We don't know for sure. But regardless, there's some faith here. They believe that Jesus can help them, right? That's why they yell out. They just hear that he's walking by, and they start shouting, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And those words themselves tell us about their faith, right? When they say Lord, they're saying something about Jesus. Now, in some ways, this could be a title just of respect, the, the title Lord, that they, they yell out. But their, their following words tell us that they, they probably meant something a little more, of the, more than that. They were recognizing Jesus' authority, perhaps even recognizing his authority over their, sick, their blindness, right? Perhaps even recognizing Jesus as deity, as, as God in the flesh. Then they asked Jesus for mercy. Have mercy on us. They, they, they need mercy. Now, what's mercy? Think about mercy for a second. Mercy is help for the afflicted. It's relief for those in misery. Or the picture that helps me is mercy is to pull someone out of the pit of their suffering. You just imagine somebody stuck in a pit, like up to their waist in mud. They're not getting out on their own. And you reach down and you pull them out of that. That's mercy, to pull someone out of the pit of their suffering. And these men believe that Jesus can do that. They believe that Jesus can pull them out of the pit of their blindness. That's why they ask him for mercy. They wouldn't have yelled, they wouldn't have asked him for mercy unless they actually believed he could show them mercy, that he could perform an act of mercy, right? They believe that this man walking by can heal them, can relieve them, can pull them out of their pit of their suffering. And this belief that Jesus can help them flows from their understanding of who Jesus is. And, and that, that comes with the next phrase they mention, right? They call him the son of David, right? And this, this doesn't mean just that his dad's name was David. That's, that's not the point here. This is a title, right? And this title, it sounds strange to us, but it has huge, huge connotations if you look at the scope of Scripture. It takes us really back to 2 Samuel 7, at which point David is kind of the quintessential king of Israel, Man after God's own heart, ruling over God's people, in many ways following God's ways, but he was imperfect, if you know his story at all. But in 2 Samuel 7, there's this promise given to David that one of his descendants would in some sense be God's son and would be a king who would reign forever. So you had this promise in 2 Samuel 7, and God's people and God himself in, in, in the following eight centuries through prophets would bring this up again and again. There's a, there's a coming David. There's a better David. There's a final David. He's going to come. And this, this began to get filled out in messianic prophecies, right? 
And you see this, this son of David that we hear about in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea who would come and establish justice and righteousness and set up his kingdom forever. He was coming. He was a king and a savior, this son of David who would come and make all things right, including sight. Listen to Isaiah 34, 35, sorry, it'll be on the screen. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Did you catch that? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus is giving a preview here of the future kingdom and he's giving a signal here that the king himself has arrived. He is the son of David. And these men recognize that. He's the Messiah, the promised king, the son of David. Now look at verse 31. It's interesting here. These men, we're seeing these men's faith, right? But here we see it tested, right? Verse 31, it says, The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowds are simply annoyed at the noise. They, they essentially tell these men to shut up. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And what these men do at this point is revealing, isn't it? They don't shrink back in a corner at this point. They don't decide to wait for a better opportunity. They don't agree with the crowd and say, you're right, Jesus probably doesn't care about us. No, they cry out, what does it say, all the more. They shout even louder, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And it becomes clear at this point that they don't see Jesus as a potential solution. They see Jesus as the only solution. This is what real faith is like, right? When you realize Jesus isn't one of many potential solutions, but he is the only solution for your deepest needs and, and the sin in your own heart and the guilt that you bear, when you realize he's the only solution, then you will fight to get to Jesus and you will die before you let go of Jesus. You need him that much. You're desperate and you're desperate for him alone. That's these men. They are yelling, and when you tell them to shut up, they're going to yell even louder because they must have Jesus. That's real faith. I must have him. I have no hope without him. He is the only one who can pull me out of the pit of my sin and guilt. Only Jesus. I must have him. Their faith continues when Jesus, in verse 33, Jesus asked them what they want. Now again, think about these guys. These are each kind of step along the way. This is like opportunity to back off and be like, "Well, I, you know, I was probably kind of overdoing it. I got a little excited." Uh, Jesus, do you just have a couple denarii, maybe, and you know, spare coins that I could have? But no, they don't do that. No, they're they're asking for big things. They're asking for healing. 
restore our sight. Why? Why? Because they're desperate and because they believe Jesus is the king who comes to restore. And so they ask for what they desperately need. They're so desperate, so full of faith in Jesus, they won't stop asking. This is how we have to come to Jesus. We cannot come just kind of needy. We we cannot come just asking for a little help. On our own, we are blind, lost, far from God, stuck in the pit of our sin and the death we deserve. We must come as blind beggars, holding out our hands, refusing to turn away, knowing there's no other place to find the mercy we need. We must come with desperate faith in Jesus, the promised King, the Son of David. That's number one, desperate faith. Number two, deep compassion. The faith of these beggars is impressive. It's real. But faith is only as good as this object, right? So if Jesus doesn't care, or if he gets annoyed at us, then our desperate faith doesn't end up being very meaningful or helpful. Thankfully, that's not what we see from Jesus ever. Look at verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Just to begin, we just look, look at that reality that Jesus stopped. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's going to die for the sins of God's people. This was his mission. This is what he came to do ultimately. And along the way, you have these vast crowds that want his attention and want to be with him. And they're all going to Jerusalem up for the feast. And yet Jesus stops for these two blind men. He lets himself be interrupted. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't reason that I have more important things to do, like like dying for the sins of God's people. He, He doesn't do that. He doesn't hurry away. He stops, and he takes time for these men. And we see this all through the Gospels, right? Jesus stopping, letting himself be interrupted, Taking time for the outcasts and the hurting. People society said weren't worth anything. And in this case, he stops, he calls these men, and he asks them what they want him to do for them. Think about that. He takes time to enter into a conversation with them, to hear from them. We might say that he, he sees them, right? Sometimes you feel like you're just not seen. Nobody knows who you are. Jesus valued these men. He sees them. And the attention that Jesus gives these men is even more striking when you contrast it with that of the crowd, the way the crowd treated these men. Right? Remember, the crowd said, be quiet. Go away. Jesus doesn't have time for you. To the crowd, these, these men were nothing. Right? They were like dogs that you... Tell them to stop barking. Anybody have that in their neighborhood? 
Maybe your own dog is the problem, right? Your dog just keeps barking and you tell, shut up, dog, and it's the middle of the night and you're yelling at dogs to be quiet or whatever. That, that's what this crowd was with these men. You're just making noise. Stop. Go away. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus was not like that. To Jesus, these men were human beings made in the image of God, worthy of attention, in need of mercy. If I could ask a question here, are our responses to the needy more like the crowd or more like Jesus? When you encounter someone in need, are they just an obstacle an annoyance, or are they people to be loved? And this could apply to us just walking through life on the street. It could apply to our kids. When your kids are needy, is it a problem? Do you just wish, man, can't you just fix it yourself? I don't want you to be needy. Or are they just barking dogs to us, or is there a heart of compassion? Uh, eagerness to show mercy. That gets, that gets tough when your kid's waking you up in the middle of the night, right? And had a, had a nightmare or something, right? <laughs> or maybe it's your spouse or a friend who keeps calling or whatever it looks like. Where's our response? We want to not see people as obstacles, but as people to be loved. Not only does Jesus give these men his attention, he helps them, right? Verse 34, it says, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. It's always interesting how Jesus performs miracles, and in this case, he touches, physically touches their eyes. It's, it's an, I think it's an expression of care here. Their eyes were the part of them that was broken, that people were repulsed by, those hollowed out sockets or white glazed over pupil. I don't know what it looked like for them, but, but it repulsed people. And this was the part that some people said was unclean. And what does Jesus do? He touches. And with his touch, he restores. He recreates. He heals these men. He shows them mercy. These two men open their eyes. They can see. The world is alive with color. There are objects and people. And there is Jesus. They see Jesus in his compassion. Look again at verse 34. It says, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Let's stop here for a second. Pity. Your translation may say compassion. The word speaks of this deep inner, like in your bowels, in your gut feeling, empathy, care, compassion. That's, that's what we're talking about here. What we see here from Jesus is not a cold, mechanical, boom, all right, uh, we got a problem here. These guys have blindness, okay, boom, touch their eyes, they're healed, I'm on my way. There's none of that here. This is coming from within the heart of Jesus, is compassion, mercy, tenderness, towards these men in their suffering. 
This isn't the only thing we see about Jesus here or other places in the Gospels. We, we see all over the place Jesus' wisdom, his power, his truth, his righteousness. We could go on, right? But it's interesting. One theologian, B.B. Warfield, noted that through the course of the Gospels, this is the emotion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus. Would you have said that if you thought about who Jesus is? Tell me about Jesus. Would the top of your list be, he has a heart of compassion, tender heart towards the suffering. That's what appears to be the case in, in, in the Gospels, in God's Word. I think of a chemical reaction. Some of you know more about this stuff, but my, my level of chemical reaction stuff is like, baking soda and vinegar, right? Or what's the Mentos and Coke and whatever, right? Like you put these things together and there's a reaction and it creates all these carbon dioxide bubbles everywhere, right? And you put the triune God and the Son of God, the eternal Son becomes flesh and walks among us and He walks and sees the suffering and the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. His heart reacts to that with Compassion, with pity. His heart responds with care. Listen to a couple of other passages that highlight this. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, 41. And the lep- a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And Mark 6, 34, this is compassion, not just towards the physical needs, but also we see here the spiritual. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Christian, it's this compassion that led Jesus to the cross to take on your guilt to lay down His life for you, and to pull you out of the pit of your sin. It was that heart of compassion. And it's this heart of compassion that even now leads Jesus to intercede for you, to be a sympathetic high priest for you in your weakness as you walk through the valleys and trials of life. And Christian, it's this heart of compassion that is part of what will bring Jesus back one day to rescue His people and to banish death and wipe away every tear and make all things new. We need to hear and believe and soak in that this heart of compassion. There's a couple of big implications for this. The first one is if we find ourselves more like the crowds than like Jesus, it's likely we haven't gotten this. If you find yourself lacking compassion, because this is me, honestly, like, I'm not the most empathetic, sympathetic person. You can ask my wife or my kids, and may, maybe now more so, because I think some of this is, God's worked some of this, but, but not, not historically. I needed to see how much compassion I needed. I, need to, I needed to know the heart of Jesus myself. When you 
realize that you're like these blind beggars and you realize how much compassion and grace and pity and mercy Jesus has shown you and you begin to enjoy that, you begin to treat others like that. That same kind of compassion flows out of you. So, so if you find yourself more like the crowd than like Jesus, then fix your eyes on Jesus. Enjoy, soak in His heart of compassion towards you, and you will find your heart begin to be transformed. The second big application here, implication, is for us to come to Jesus. See, a lot of us don't want to admit that we're needy. We try to act like everything's okay. But behind closed doors, deep down, we're broken. We're hurting. We're alone in the dark. We're drowning with chronic sickness or marriage struggles or exhaustion or depression or fear or just hurts from our past or present. And we kind of think that if Jesus saw our mess, he would turn away and move on to someone else who is less needy. That he has better and bigger things to do than to care about our problems. And this passage reminds us this is so far from the truth. Jesus moves toward us in our suffering. His heart is for us in our struggles. And when we really get this, we will begin to go to him with our need instead of avoiding him. If you think Jesus is going to be annoyed with you because you're needy again, you're not going to go to him. Remember that boss analogy? Like, I didn't ever want to ask my boss for help because I didn't know what I was going to get. And I knew that half the time he was going to be annoyed that I needed help again. Well, sometimes we're like that with Jesus. We don't want to go to Jesus because we think he's just going to be annoyed and impatient. What, again? Again, right? But when we're convinced of the compassionate heart of Jesus, we will go to him in our need. We'll know that he's not, oh no, Tim again. Ah, oh, jeez, can't he get it together? That's not his heart. He's No, come, son, I want to help you. We will want to come to Him in our suffering and need instead of avoiding Him. Notice the last phrase in verse 34. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. They follow Him. They believe He's the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord. They've witnessed His power. They've experienced His compassion. And now they want to follow Him. And who wouldn't? When you see who Jesus is, when you come to know His heart, when you know and see what kind of king he is, this is the natural, I want this kind of king, this kind of master, a master who is king, who has all power, but who has this heart of compassion. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it shows us Jesus Christ. Pray that we would walk away imprinted with Christ Jesus on our hearts today, believing and knowing and relishing His heart of compassion even for sinners and needy people like us. We are so thankful. We rest 
on that compassion. We enjoy it. We give thanks for it. And we ask for your grace that we might reflect it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.